Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I no longer sound like I have consumption, so that's something. Uh, I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends who are not dying. Hopefully. Yay, mostly. Uh, mostly. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, Marvel. Looks like it's welcome in China again. At least that's the takeaway from news that Black Panther Wakanda Forever is getting a release in China on February 7th, which is like three months or so after it was released in the rest of the world. Uh, more importantly, Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania will get a release in China 10 days later, which is the same weekend that it's coming out in the United States. I say more importantly because there's a 100% chance that anyone in China uh, who wants to watch Black Panther Wakanda Forever could literally go out and find a copy of Wakanda Forever just like on street corners, just in the gutters, probably, you know, uh, on on Pirate Bay or whatever. Um, I I would be kind of surprised if Wakanda Forever grosses that much in China with this sort of release date, but you never know. It might be just enough to push the sequel over Doctor Strange 2 in the worldwide global box office, but we'll see. Quantum Mania, however, is where there's more money to be made. How much more? Open question, right? It's kind of hard to judge the state of the Chinese box office right now as grosses uh, have cratered in the midst of widespread COVID lockdowns. Um, and being, you know, if you go to a theater and somebody there has COVID, you could get sent to a literal prison cramp camp for months. Uh, maybe weeks, days, some amount of time. Uh, nobody wants to do that. Um, Avatar The Way of Water uh, opened though over there, but it's held pretty well. It's grossed up more than $200 million in China, which is um, a number that would have been disappointing to studios 18 months ago, but now they're like, hey, all right, we'll take what we can get. Uh, regardless, there are some who suggested that one of the reasons Bob Iger was brought back in to run Disney was to repair relationships with China, which he uh, improved greatly during his first tenure there. And lo and behold, what have we here? Uh, on the one hand, I'm pro going to movies and theaters. I'm pro people seeing movies and theaters. I'm pro doing whatever it takes to ensure that theatrical window can maintain. Um, on the other hand, I'm anti-kowtowing to China. Bad. Nobody nobody should be doing that. Uh, Peter, is there a way that uh, Disney can really square this circle to do two things at the same time? Protect theatrical releases and not, uh, you know, give in to Chinese censors and neuter their own art. I think the headline here is Marvel Movies Get Back Into China, Sunny Bunch Hardest Hit. Because this well, is, but also that's also a win for me, right? right? But that, but want, this is I the want, point: is that know. like it's 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 a deeply conflicted thing for you because we did a whole segment about uh, China being under you know serious COVID lockdowns and like the the thing that you pointed out that was you know sort of that most affected you, right? Like the small thing was the people that the person who was like, "I want movie freedom." That's what I want. Is I want to be able to like walk around and be out of my apartment and see movies. And part of the you know the, the the point that I made during that conversation was, in order for that to happen, on the one hand, China has to give up on its zero COVID policy, which it now has. Like that that policy is over at least for now. You never know with the Chinese government whether they're gonna uh, you know go back on, on things. But that policy is over at least for now. But in order for them to see movies, or then. They've got to have movies, and that means letting Western American films in. Now, it doesn't 
always mean that because, you know, one thing that's interesting about Avatar is even though it has performed pretty well in the Chinese market, it's not the number one film. It's not doing Fast and the Furious or Transformers level business where it's just dominating the box office like some of the big um, uh, you know, Chinese-driven uh, blockbusters have in the past. It's not even doing Wandering Earth 2 right. business, it's, it's, which is, you know, homegrown Chinese, the sequel to a homegrown Chinese blockbuster um, that, you know, I think took in like $70 million last weekend, if I'm correct. Yeah, and so th- right, this this is exactly right. And so maybe the way to square this circle is China lifts its zero COVID policy, but then Chinese uh, citizens choose to go see Chinese movies. And that's what Ch- that Sonny Bunch wants to happen. At the same time, doesn't Sonny, doesn't that like offend your sense of American, you know, uh, cultural hegemony here? Isn't there something that like you're, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think this is, I think... That this is, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, it, it's exactly what you said. There's something that is obviously very good about it in the sense that, like, this is that this is part and parcel with the end of the zero COVID policy. This is uh, Chinese audiences getting to see these movies, which, like, there's no reason for the Chinese, like, the Chinese government should not be in the business of making that decision one way or the other. These films should play if Disney wants them to play, and theater and theater owners want to want to show them. And there's an and there's a market for it, but. To the extent that that uh, China is in that business, like this is, you know, it's good to see, uh, you know, American cultural products back in China. At the same time, this is going to perpetuate the dependence of Hollywood studios uh, specifically and big entertainment conglomerates generally on the Chinese market. At the same time, I do think the experiment or whether or not it was intended clearly wasn't. But the experiment of of releasing movies uh, for a couple of years without the Chinese market has at least shown probably some of the executives in Hollywood there's another way and maybe they should pull back somewhat, especially for things basically that aren't sort of the big Disney-style tentpoles, Fast and Furious, Transformers, the, the handful of franchises that just do outsized business in China. Yeah, I mean, Alyssa, isn't isn't the the real lesson here uh, to treat Chinese money as like found currency, as something is like money that you find on the street, and if you you find it, great, but if not, you can live without it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the healthiest equilibrium here, uh, artistically, financially, geopolitically, would be one in which. Um, Hollywood is confident in a business model that does not rely on Chinese box office and that therefore um, results in a sort of more diversified slate of offerings, movies that are, you know, cost less to make, are expected to make less, um, you know, a situation where the entertainment environment is not dominated by a handful of movies that effectively cost a half a billion dollars to make in market and therefore need the Chinese audience. But also for there to be a situation where Chinese audiences want and are excited about American movies and are impatient by about the censorship and weird pandering things that Chinese censors often made that made American directors and studios insert in movies in the pre-COVID era. Um, So a situation where the American movie industry is strong and confident enough not to need China, but where Chinese audiences still want American movies because they are the best, the franchise is the most interesting, they're the most creative. Um, it, that is an equilibrium that I think Hollywood and you know the U.S. in general should be striving for. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the uh, the kind of under 
appreciated factor here is is the impact of piracy and kind of how how much studios fear that though i i read an interesting story uh the other day about how gen z doesn't know how to pirate that they like can't they they don't understand the files and and all that Further of proof of a new generation's fragility and softness. Yeah, I was like, I was like, you know, back in my day, we had to string together different files off Kazaa into one, into one, you know, file that worked. Because these days haven't heard of BitTorrent. Like, so I, come on. so this no, is- I actually think that BitTorrent has declined in usage, both it, both in usability, yeah. right? Like in terms of my sense yeah. is that BitTorrent just doesn't have the kind of selection that it used to have, uh, right? <laughs> like that, where like literally uh, when I was in college, um, some of these file sharing networks would have first run big studio films a week or two weeks or even in some cases a full month before their release, not just like right afterwards. I mean, just sort of, but this, that wasn't necessarily the most common thing, but um, I certainly like I, I hung out with IT guys, you know, and was like a sort of in the like early computer nerd, like world in the like late 1990s and early aughts. Those guys pirated so much stuff. And so I was just constantly of it, like aware of, of, of what was going on uh, with, with all of that. Right. And, my sense is that those those old style networks don't exist anymore. However, uh, there's just a, a whole bunch of just basically sites that you can go to to kind of stream stuff. This is what I hear yeah. from younger people who I like who who sort of don't think about it all that much. In the same way that like this has been true now for 20 years, is that 22 year olds are like, I feel like I don't have money. I'm just going to watch it however I can for free. Uh, whether that means you know using my parents' Netflix account or whether it means something that's less uh legal than that kids this is how you used to build a like an eclectic music collection before youtube and spotify and when you had no money i don't know kids these days gotta learn how to I mean, pirate to the, things to the um, extent that that's true it is really a case for streaming and one of the arguments that people made for streaming was that that like if it was easy to just like pay one flat fee and watch stuff that people would do that and they wouldn't pirate things. And if people are actually forgetting how to sort of do the cumbersome uh, pirating, then that's in some ways that's a win for the streaming market. Yeah, we've gotten a little off track. But yeah, I, look, I think the the problem with Hollywood's relationship to China has been that the, the, the sort of flows of power and desirability have gone sort of in the wrong direction, right? I mean, um, Hollywood, which is supposed to be like the greatest entertainment generator in the world, has been sort of subservient to Chinese censors and has built a business model around built around Chinese uh, dollars flowing back. And the confidence should be reversed, right? I mean, Hollywood should be confident that it can it can live without China, but also confident that it's producing stuff that Chinese people want to see so much that the government will feel pressure to let it in. And so, to the extent, I mean, look, I don't think. The COVID pandemic has been good for anyone's confidence in the entertainment industry, nor should it necessarily be. But, um, you know, I think if we get to a place where people realize that that is the more desirable state of affairs, that would be very healthy. Uh, What do you guys make of the Bob Iger return slash return to China kind of coinciding almost almost simultaneously? Because I do think that that is an under appreciated part of this story uh he is uh he is something of a china whisperer um for a while he was he was floating that he wanted to be ambassador to china under uh, joe biden um you know that that uh i i i have very mixed feelings about all of this um 
but I uh, but I'm curious what you it's guys. It's genuinely think. unclear I mean, to me whether this is a result of Bob Iger of the first Bob returning or whether it is mostly a result of the end of uh, China's zero COVID policy or whether it's some combination of the two. But certainly when Bob came back, uh, right, there were multiple reports that mentioned that what people were looking for was a return to the Chinese market. At the same time, didn't Bob Chapek help stand up Shanghai Disney? It's not like he's unconnected there. Um, And so, I mean, I think, look, it's... I mean, it's possible that the Chinese government would have done it anyway, and the timing is such that, like, you know, they're like, might as well throw our favorite Bob a bone. Um, I mean, the slate was set, you know, China probably, you know, the zero COVID policy was coming. Um, Whether it's a happy coincidence or proof of, like, Bob One's Machiavellian, you know, geopolitical power, um, it sure works out nicely for him. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that the mouse house is getting cozy again with the Middle Kingdom? Melissa? Um, I think it's a controversy just in the sense that it seems a pretty pr- predictable business decision. Peter? It's a little bit of a controversy in that it is going to extend uh, and uh, if not deepen Hollywood's relationship with China in ways that are going to continue to affect uh, film production, at least at Disney at, uh, at the blockbuster level. Uh, I think it's mostly a controversy unless uh, we get into another one of these situations where everybody is very much tailoring their material to please Chinese censors, which is bad. That's like the one thing I cannot abide. I can abide a lot in this world, but not not that. Uh, all right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday in which we'll be discussing Edgar Allan Poe. Speaking of Baltimore's dipsomaniac poet laureate, on to the main event. The Pale Blue Eye, which is Netflix's kind of weirdly positioned late-year prestige picture uh, that reteams director Scott Cooper and star Christian Bale in a murder mystery. Uh, It stars Bale as Augustus Landor, who teams up with one cadet Edgar Allan Poe, he's played by Harry Melling, um, to solve a series of murders at West Point during Poe's tenure as a student there. Uh, Augustus is a drunk. He's got to sober up for this job. Uh, and Poe is a much-disliked outcast. The murders, which involve uh, killing and then ritually removing the hearts of the victims, are the sort of thing we might suspect the younger Edgar Allan Poe to be involved in, you know, given uh, all this weird, macabre writing that we know of. Uh, his his classmates certainly seem to think he's involved, but again, that's mostly just because he's kind of a weirdo loner. Um, the truth, much more horrifying than anyone can guess, and all that... Good stuff. It's a murder mystery, folks. Got to figure out the mystery. Um, as a murder mystery, uh, I think the pale blue eye is mostly effective, though. I don't know how you guys felt about the end. Mild cheat, I thought. But we'll, we'll discuss that maybe. Um, as a film, it mostly serves as a reminder that uh, Harry Melling is the best of the child actors to come out of the Harry Potter franchise, weirdly. Um, and also that Bale is always fun and interesting to watch. He has the best arched eyebrows in the game. Like, he just, he, like, when he looks kind of, like, at someone off camera, he's got that arched eyebrow thing going on. I'm always like, yes, that's what I want my eyebrows to look like. Um, the less said about Gillian Anderson as the aging housewife, the better. I I, I don't want to pick on Gillian Anderson and her turn in this movie. Sounds like you're about to except, pick on Gillian Anderson. Except to say, 
I, just the the phrase that kept flashing in my mind was TV actress. Um, uh, the, I'm mostly interested uh, in this movie as it relates to Scott Cooper's place in the awards system ecosystem. Like um, he he's one of these directors who like I will open an awards screener DVD pack once every two or three years, and there will be a movie by him. Uh, that has no real chance of winning much of anything, but is it's just in this kind of weird liminal space between award season acclaim and commercial viability, right? And he burst onto the scene with a Crazy Heart, which finally won Jeff Bridges his Oscar, right? And it's, it got a few more nominations and I think another win for Best Song. And every couple of years we get a movie from him that like should be an award season thing, but never quite pans out, right? Previously, Cooper worked with Bale on Into the Furnace and Hostiles. Uh, he directed Johnny Depp as Whitey Bulger in Black Mass. And then there was this elevated horror movie, Antlers, that got lost in the COVID era shuffle. Um, it was supposed to come out like uh, like two weeks after everything closed for COVID and then got pushed back to like late 2021 and nobody ended up watching it, which is too bad. It's not terrible. Um, I don't have a grand point here. I just think it's like kind of interesting that here we have a director who is like the pay to be prestigious guy. I don't I don't quite understand his place in the ecosystem. It just it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm glad he keep, gets to keep making movies that are mostly OK. I don't know. Uh, anyway, The Pale Blue Eye. Alyssa, what did you make of it? I thought it was sort of funny that this movie is posi- positioned for a prestige play in any way, because it's like handsome pulp, right? I mean, it's a sort of tarted up you know, literary mystery. It's like Edgar Allan Poe's, you know, superhero origin, weirdo superhero origin story. Bale is good in it, but like a little broad. Um, You know, all the like... More or less broad than in Amsterdam? Oh, less broad than in Amsterdam. Um, I mean, like, I, I feel like if we're doing like Christian Bale broadness, like Amsterdam is one end of the spectrum, right? It's like, you know... Maybe maybe Patrick Bateman's like a little bit beyond that, but uh, pretty broad in Amsterdam. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, you know, you've got all these nice sort of wintry shots of West Point, um, you know, and that area of New York like does look like that in winter. It's, you know, it's kind of craggy and beautiful uh, and austere. Um, but the story is fundamentally kind of silly, right? It's like, it's got, you know, I mean... It actually feels sort of substantially ripped off of um, uh, Arturo Perez Reverte's The Club Dumas, which is a similar, like, here's a book for, you know, summoning the devil. It's, you know, it was, it's like there are a couple of copies available. It was supposed to be destroyed, but there are a couple copies available. Plot. Um, you know, the twist, I think, is, like, pretty obvious. Um, and it's just, like, it's like a slice of deli meat, right? It's, like, it's it's delicious. It's not, like, fine cuisine. Um and, you know, I in a weird way, I think it would have been smarter to release this in, like, mid-February, you know, as, like, sort of elevated horror, um, rather than presenting it as, like, a, a serious movie or, like, an acting showcase. Um, it's one of those movies that, you know, I feel like it was sort of served up as, like, a slice of American cheese might have actually gotten more people talking about it. But the idea of it is, like, you know, a, you know a late season contender for bail or whatever. It just feels very weird to me. Um, and you mentioned um, Henry Melling, um, who I just have a, I have a lot of sympathy for because I have a lot of sympathy for all of the kids who were in the Harry Potter movies because that's just a really weird way to start your acting career. Um, and I actually think a lot of them have done fairly well. I'm not sure I agree with you that Melling is 
the best of them. Um, but I think it's sort of impressive the number of them who have both like stayed in acting and made like fairly interesting or like substantive choices um, and managed to sort of get beyond what really could have ended up being some incredibly intense typecasting. I mean, it's also funny that Timothy Spall, who is also in the Harry Potter movies, um, is in this movie as well. And it, you know, seeing him on screen doesn't have the same sort of weird charge to it, in part because he was somebody before he was in the Harry Potter movies well, yeah. and somebody after. Yeah, yeah. He's also, you know, lost a lot of weight, looks different. But um, it's, you know, I think I give, I grade all of those, and they're adults now, they're not kids. I grade all of those young actors who are in the Harry Potter movies just on a substantial curve because of the degree of difficulty of becoming someone different on screen under those circumstances. So um, I do think he does a really strong job of, you know, holding his Poe at this weird knife edge balance between weirdness and normality, right? Like he's, you know, he's someone who is poised to fall one way or the other, and he doesn't quite, you know, make that fatal tip in either direction in the movie, but you can sort of see how he is being set up to become the person who, you know, has this strange, captivating imagination. Um, and I do think Melling does a nice job and consistency with a somewhat tough accent. Yeah. I will say, I will. In, I, I, I really do think that he is, uh, dis, discount, not including like Daniel Radcliffe um, or uh, Hermione. Um, Emma Watson. Emma Watson, who like, like, I feel like they were better positioned being the leads, whatever. I, I I just mean mostly the other kids who were kind of there through through the the series. I mean he he's great in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He's uh he's very good in the old guard, weirdly. Remember remember he shows up in the old he's the yes. villain in the yes, old guard. Yes, that's right. Um which is which he's very, very good in. And he's great here, I thought. I mean I, I like I think he and Bale are really good together on screen. It's hard I like it is hard to hold your own with Christian Bale in a movie like this. Yes. Uh and I, we've seen he actors does it. Who, who couldn't quite do it before? Like as much as I like the fighter, I don't know that Mark Wahlberg is quite quite in the same, you know, uh, level uh, quite quite at the same level as Christian Bale. But like I think I think Melling uh, totally does it here, um, and he's he's very good. So I, I but uh, but no, you're right. It's total it's total pulp, um, like uh, the sort of thing that probably should have been uh, you know. A February release, except like, what difference does it make to Netflix? Yeah, of it course, it just exists, right? Right, Peter, it just exists there on the service. Now it's just a little rectangle on your screen. It's always going to be there. F- so, what difference does it make if it comes out now or in yeah, February? It's a February release if you watch it in February. <laughs> exactly, it's always going to be there in February. Every February, no. This actually, um, I actually feel like if we're going to talk about release dates, this movie should have come out sometime at the uh, in the last two weeks of October. The last two oh, weeks yeah. of October, no, it's yeah. not just that it's sort of a horror film, it's that the last two weeks of October traditionally have a somewhat elevated, moody, uh, uh, R-rated, thriller, horror, mystery-type thing, right? It's a little smarter, a little better made than, like, the kind of thing that you might get in mid-March or, you know, early February, um, but, like, also still kind of fundamentally pulpy. That is, this is like a prime late October film, and so I agree, it's a little bit weird to release it at the very 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 end of the year um i didn't 
I, I didn't think this is this was like a oh wow must see, but I guess I was sort of pleasantly surprised in some ways while also being underwhelmed. Uh, the thing that I liked most about this movie was the mood of it. Right, it's just it's really effectively uh, sort of wintry and chilly and cold and dark, and there's all this great candlelight photography where you've got these like deep blacks and these you know the the light is flickering on the actors' faces and you can see exactly as much uh, of their eyes and their skin and their face you know as you want to see and even when it's not being necessarily directly candlelit uh you see there's great sort of window light in this movie um even in some cases where it's obviously sets right like this you know they're replicating this sort of thing and it just has a great tone and mood to it um you know that's sort of chilly and reserved i think in some ways to a fault because this movie as much as it sort of does a, a nice job of capturing a mood it also never quite engages in the way that it needs to. It never builds the momentum that you want it to have. It's not slow, exactly. It's not poorly paced. It sort of you know moves along and checks the boxes. At the same time, I never felt I never felt pulled in in the way that I, I I want to with a really great mystery, right? With a with something where you know you're sort of like, oh, oh, what's going to happen? These people are in danger, and I want to know who's, like, I can't tell what's going to happen, or I have some idea, but, like, maybe this movie has something sort of even smarter cooked up, right? There's this sort of perfunctoriness, and also this kind of, like, well, we're just going to keep going at a nice measured pace till we get to the end, when inevitably there will be a big twist. Uh, I, I, I also... Here's a here's something I, I mentioned to you guys before the show, but I, I just want to raise here because I I thought it was a little weird that Edgar Allan Poe was in this. Yes, I get that Edgar Allan Poe went to you know uh, the the military academy, like that he was a real historical character there. Yes, I get that this movie involves elements from you know that are sort of Poe esque in right the 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 um the removal of the heart, the dead people, right that sort of thing, the sort of occult elements. Uh, yes, I get that that, that, that it was true that Poe was in the novel that this was based on, right? But you can it's this seems like the sort of story that wouldn't. It's not obviously better because that character's name is Edgar Allan Poe. If if this story was just about a young poet who had sort of uh, dark interests and was weird looking and was made fun of, who happened to be named, I don't know, John Smith, right? Like, would it really be any different? Would it be a better or worse or like, like the, the Poe aspect of it to me seemed like Oh, if we put Poe in this, that will signal to people what kind of movie this is going to be. It'll like tell you something about it, or what kind of story, I guess. And it will give people an element that they already know, while allowing me to sort of tell like you know an original detective type story. And I guess like that's a as a hook for getting attention for your novel. It totally makes sense. It's hard to get people to pay attention to novels. And like this one was nominated, I think maybe even one for the uh, the Edgar, right? Like it was well-respected in the mystery world, right? Like, and, you know, it's hard to get people to pay attention to those things. Ex- at the same time, it just sort of seemed like a kind of a, like a, a, cheat. a marketing hook, maybe a smart <clears throat> one. But I, I couldn't figure out, like, it would make more sense to me if this were the start of a series of novels about, uh, you know, the, the Bale character about, uh, sorry, what's his uh, about Augustus Landor and Edgar Allan Poe solving mysteries together, right? If this was going to be a franchise. But it's just sort of like, well, here's a here's a detective story, and it 
hap- Edgar Allan Poe happens to be in it. A little odd. I wonder. I I, I think I, I I understand what you're saying. I I mostly agree with you. Uh, to be honest, I do think you could make the argument that uh, having Poe in it makes sense as a certain kind of broad statement about you know uh, America. One of one of the great American authors, and here's a uniquely American setting, the kind of upper New York, you know, barren. I don't know. No, I, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it does, it does, it's not necessary. It's, it is mostly, um, I think, just to be like, oh, Edgar Allan Poe's in this. Right. It doesn't, okay. it, there's, there's nothing that depends on it being Edgar Allan Poe. If you made it not Edgar Allan Poe, if you made that character not Edgar Allan Poe, the story would work basically the same way. It would just lack some of the literary resonance that Poe being in this in this story uh, gives it. And that, to me, like, I, I guess I just wanted something more out of that illusion. Um, again, I, this is not a bad movie exactly, and it's got a, it's got a nice mood. Christian Bale's beard is great. Uh, the twist is good enough. Um, and I, is it? Can I? I want to. I want to interject no, here think... because when I when I mentioned the twist, okay. uh, Alyssa Let's made talk a about face. The twist. Alyssa, Alyssa made a face, and I, I I don't know that we need to actually give away the twist here. I feel like we've done a good job of kind of dancing around, and and let's see if we can continue that. But I here's my issue with the twist at the end is that the whole last twenty minutes of this movie is just uh, uh, Christian Bale and Melling talking to each other. It's just Edgar Allan Poe and this Augustus Landor talking to each other and talking and talk and talk. It's it's all tell. It's all tell, not show. And I know that this is... Look, this is... I've, I've complained about this before um, in relation to some other movies, like, uh, you know, this is this is how the Brana Christie movies kind of end with, like, large, long... Sec- just, here's, what's, here's what actually happened. Um, and that is the way that these things usually pan out, and I get it. But at the same time, it is just a lot of standing around and talking and explaining. Right, Alyssa? Am I, am I wrong that that's not... No, I don't like... think it's wrong. I also think the movie... I mean, you know, Peter, you talked about the movie relying on the presence of Edgar Allan Poe for a sort of literary toniness that it doesn't earn on its own. And I think the movie also relies on a lot of sort of dropped-in dialogue about, like, sort of the threats to West Point's existence from politicians and the need to preserve its reputation that the movie doesn't develop but sort of relies on for the idea that something more than a murder mystery is at stake here, right? And, you know, it ends up being – there ends up being sort of this irony that, you know, the – like – I'm trying to figure out how to say this without spoiling the movie, but that the whole quest to sort of preserve West Point's reputation is in part carried out by people who have actually damaged that reputation um, that the movie doesn't really grapple with in part because it doesn't explain really what like sort of the political situation of West Point is. It doesn't explain how old the military academy is or like what the, you know, what the politicians in Washington don't like about it. And so all of that is just sort of undercooked in the same way, you know, the presence of Poe in the movie is a bit undercooked. Um, and it makes the it makes the twist and the very sentimental way it's handled at the end um, feel sort of insubstantial. Cheap and tawdry, almost. I like I was like almost a little annoyed by it 
Uh, Peter, I don't know I about you. I was not annoyed by it. Um, I, I guess I felt like the... It didn't have the emotional impact that a twist uh, that uh, like this should have had, because again, it was um, it was designed as a sort of it was designed for maximum cleverness, even yeah. though the thing that it's about is something that should be a gut punch, and it's not. And that's, I think, the biggest. Yeah. That's that's what I was sort of talking about. This movie's mood, like effective moodiness. But also it's reserve. It's like it's it, it's inability to truly engage you on the stakes and the seriousness for both the the uh, Alyssa is totally right about the way that it just kind of asserts the stakes to the institution without in any way dramatizing them. But even our our detective character, even, you know, um, Christian Bale's character is just not someone who you feel all that much for even if you're kind of interested in what he's doing. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Pale Blue Eye? Peter? Mostly thumbs up, though it's certainly not a must-see or anything close, but it's not a terrible way to spend two hours and ten minutes. Alyssa? Perfectly acceptable laundry-folding movie. <laughs> uh, that is the that is Netflix mid-year right there. Um, uh, I would say I, 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 a thumbs up because it is fine, but I, I would not rush out to go see it. I mean, it, it really is like inessential uh, movie viewing, but not incompetently done or uh, unentertaining necessarily. It's just it's. it's I would fine. I would describe this not quite as a laundry folding movie, though I totally accept that. Uh, but as like a it's nine p.m. and you can't think about anything movie. But you've, you're not going to go to bed for another two hours. You just need something that's like serious enough without being goofy, and that but that doesn't take up too much brain space. If the, and you like mysteries that are sort of kind of grim. A perfectly yeah. acceptable diversion. The across the movie aisle seal of <laughs> approval. Put that <laughs> on the DVD box. Oh wait, they don't make DVDs anymore, especially of Netflix movies. Certainly not for Netflix. All right. Uh, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If it don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.